I'm recording. You're recording? Yeah, I'm recording. Awesome. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever you're listening, welcome to The Hot Owl. My name is Brent Piatti, and with me? I'm Brian Carpenter. Awesome, dude. Well, uh, we're we're excited to be on. This is episode 35 again. Um, We're excited to be on this morning. The goal of the show is to educate you on the evolving world of of all flash arrays. Specifically, however, we want to look at this 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 world of crazy low latency, insanely high IOPS, and ultra throughput. Uh, so we want to dig into uh, kind of what enables that. So things like NVMe and and MVM, uh, NVMe fabrics. Well, easy for me to say. And then PCIe fabrics. So. Um, and then also we'll look at use cases for this and how companies are using it to gain a competitive edge. So with us this morning, we have probably the the, the f- uh, furthermost expert on everything we just talked about. His name's Mike Shapiro. Good morning, Mike. Hey, how you guys doing? doing We're doing great. great. So Mike, it's uh, it's fun because we we talk about this all the time. We dig and we research and we do all these things. Couldn't find anything about you except for this is one thing that I don't have. You had a wiki page, so there's actually a Mike Shapiro Wikipedia, and I, if I needed one of those, I'd have to go create it for myself, right? Like, hey, kids, I have a wiki. It's because I created it five minutes ago. So uh, <laughs> we thought that was awesome. Is that something? I uh, Certainly, well, that's not self-sponsored, is it? Uh, no, no. I think the uh, the, the press uh, press team from uh, probably from EMC, uh, I think, helped with that. Uh, so I, I, uh, I, have, I have to give them some props, but... Uh, uh, yeah, it's good. It's good. And it's got some good links to uh, some folks have added to uh, various adventures over my career. So it's uh, it's fun. Well, I think instead of my I think I'm gonna go delete my LinkedIn account and I'm gonna create my own wiki page and just put everything <laughs> put, put everything out there because I loved reading it. So yeah. a lot of cool stuff in there. I found out things. So again, we, we reached out to you because of DSSD. Um, and you know, it's kind of a, a change in the way things are done and it's kind of interesting. And obviously between the announcement last year at EMC world and where we are today and quantum leap a couple of months ago. So you were at quantum leap in New York. Did you, so who did you, somebody else was in London or was that? No, I, I was in London too. Okay. Uh, London's where we did, uh, we, we did, a, it was kind of a, a, a certainly a, compared to what I do most of the time, uh, being in an office and a computer, I was a whirlwind six day tour. Uh, I actually I live in San Francisco, which is where I am now. So we did this in six days. We did San Francisco, London, uh, and uh, New York, and also Washington, D.C. Uh, for some of our government customers. Uh, so kind of a, a whirlwind six-day tour. Uh, and then London's where we did the actual stage show. Uh, so for folks who haven't seen it, uh, if you go on the EMC main page now, uh, there's a lot of stuff about EMC World, but there's a thing that says uh, "Take a Quantum Leap," which was the name of our launch. Just click on that, and you can see the whole keynote video. Uh, there's, I think, I'm like chapter six or seven or something. So if you click on there, you can start at the DSSD part and uh, check out the demo with uh, myself and Jeremy. So, what do you think of the little blue frog? You know what? It's funny you mention that uh, because much, much, much was talked about about the Blue Frog at the launch. Um, first of all, was, we should explain for folks that, that the Quantum Leap theme is because we did, this is a leap year, of course. Uh, normally, if you're a computer scientist or software engineer, we should state that a leap year is your mortal enemy because time and computer software do not mix well. And every year, especially every leap year, there's some crazy crisis where like, your iPhone alarm doesn't work and clocks don't go off at the right time and all that. So normally leap years are very stressful. Uh, uh, but uh, this one was a great one. We did the quantum leap launch uh, on leap year. Uh, and, they, and they had this giant blue frog mascot. When I got to London, I actually walked into the venue. And they had a, a like 40-foot paper mache version of that frog. 
Uh, so it was it was really uh, amazing, and then they they had like the animated frog in the background. And for most of the launch, we were trying to figure out whose guy whose responsibility it was to like animate the frog because someone had clearly worked very very hard on that. Yeah, it's a uh, and what's funny is you know with it in PowerPoint and things like that, it really is magical. It stands out from the page. Yeah, um, but the other the other part of that was you know with Quantum Leap, we saw a lot of uh, Scott Bakula references. Is that his name? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, yes. The, uh, uh, what was the name of that show? Uh, oh, right. The Quantum Leap show. Right. He was the guy and I forget the other guy's name, but, uh, yeah, that was, we're taking us back to the eighties now, but, uh, yeah, that, that was, uh, uh, what ever became of that guy? They need to find him. I don't, yeah, I think is um, between him and the I, dude, you're getting a Dell dude. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like both of those guys need to show up as part of like our, our marketing campaigns over the next yeah, couple of months. Well, I, Lord knows I think Scott Bakula could use the work, so we should have offered him to be on stage there in London and launch DSSD with us. He's, he's probably doing important things like saving the earth and, and providing like solar power to, to remote places and doing, yeah. doing awesome stuff. And we're talking about the fact that he needs to be on, you know, on stage with us. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was actually talking about um, a slide came up yesterday with a customer and it had Quantum Leap on it. And they looked at me, they all looked at me and they're like, are you guys doing quantum computing now? <laughs> and I just was like, holy shit. I mean, whoop. <laughs> I you always didn't gotta, even last I got to drop one. Yeah. Yeah, at least. <laughs> it's we got to make sure background. it's PG-13, yeah. So, uh, you know, Mike, you have a you have a fantastic past, you know, aside from we'll get into the whole thing of how you got to EMC and the path of that, but if we roll back a little bit further, um, as we see things like Sun Microsystems and Oracle in your history, um, you know, can you give us the elevator, the long elevator version of, you know, where you've been? Sure. Uh, well, like you said, I, I started my career in the industry uh, at Sun Microsystems, uh, so uh, uh, basically uh, close to 20 years ago now. Um, and I kind of had have had a, a pretty fun career in systems because I spent the first half of my career, basically the first decade, uh, working on operating system kernels, and the second decade uh, working on storage. So I've had a, a lot of fun working on two different areas, and they they have a lot to do with each other. Um, uh, so it, it's been really interesting, uh, sort of now looking back uh, that I've basically spent half my career in each of those areas. Um, so when I started out, I, I joined, uh, 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 the crazy Solaris uh, kernel group, uh, at Sun. Uh, when I was, when I was coming out of university, uh, you know, everyone had Unix systems. Sun was kind of Unix headquarters and, uh, that's what I wanted to do. So I moved out to the Valley, uh, and, and joined up with, uh, an amazing crew we had going at Sun. Uh, this was kind of in the, the late nineties. Um, and, uh, you know, did a lot of different operating system stuff there over the, over the years, um, working on stuff like D-Trace and fault management and, uh, writing the debugger we had for the kernel, uh, and, uh, you know, all kinds of different uh, areas of the operating system. Um, and I actually, you know, I didn't, I hadn't actually done a lot of, uh, so I did a lot of interesting things, but really none of them had anything to do with storage. Um, and uh, it was during, uh, you know, the, but I had actually worked uh, when I was in school, I sort of paid my way in part by being a system administrator. Um, and so I'd done, you know, uh, backups, to, backups and restores from tapes and, and we had, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, RAID volumes and file systems uh, with, uh, gosh, it was the, uh, the Sun online disk suite uh, and, and, and Veritas and things like that. Um, so I had some experience with that, but then I sort of spent, the first part of my career at Sun doing, uh, you know, sort of everything but storage. Um, uh, during that time, though, um, uh, got a chance to work, uh, among other things, with uh, my colleague Jeff Bonwick. Um, and towards the end of my, um, 
sort of towards the end of the sun time, I was working on other stuff, but Jeff and some other folks uh, came up with the idea for ZFS at that time uh, and worked on that for several years. Uh, so this was sort of like starting in around, gosh, it was like about 2001, 2002, um, that work on ZFS started. Um, and that was part of sort of this big Solaris 10 release we were doing. So I was working on Dtrace and other things at that time. Uh, but ZFS was certainly an exciting project. And that kind of re-energized, uh, I think, not only obviously great technology, but it really re-energized thinking around storage in the operating system group. Uh, and so that was really when I started getting interested in storage again. Um, because uh, prior to that, you know, uh, it's the way Sun was organized, we, we had a storage division, but we weren't really doing a ton of our own storage engineering. It was really a lot of just acquisitions of other companies. Um, and Sun certainly didn't have a, a name in storage like EMC does. Um, once we had ZFS, though, I think that was kind of a, a real eye-opener because we'd done something really innovative. And at the same time, we had finished Solaris 10, um, which was sort of a, a real big moonshot for the operating system group with a lot of these new technologies in it. Um, and so after Solaris 10, so now we're sort of like at uh, you know, 2005, 2006, uh, was really when I, when I started getting interested in storage again. And we, we put together... Uh, a, a sort of a secret project team inside of Sun, uh, which I led, uh, which was to actually go produce a ZFS appliance, uh, which is actually a sold, was sold by Sun. We launched that under Sun and then was sold by, after the acquisition, uh, was sold by Oracle. So I sort of led this team of people, I sort of became a storage engineer around 2006, uh, and that's when I got into storage, and then I've been working on that uh, for the past 10 years. Sun, uh, then leading the storage team at Oracle, uh, and then uh, found in DSSD with uh, some of the, the partners in crime from Sun, like uh, Jeff, who I mentioned. Yeah, and that's it's interesting. So I can't, I don't really know the time the time frames, but I was going to ask you a funny thing. You know, when Oracle, a friend of mine worked at Pillar, and Oracle acquired Pillar as one of those. Again, those we're going to try some storage things, and it's funny because they've kind of actually rebrought back Pillar in a in a product they announced last year. Um, were you around when they were doing things like acquiring things like Pillar? Was that were you, or was that well, you were still at Sun or? I I I had actually so the Pillar acquisition actually happened after I had left to start DSSD. Okay. Uh, so so the, I wasn't there for that, but yeah, certainly when I when I got there, um, you know, to or Oracle took a while to sort of digest Sun. Uh, I was running the storage division uh, at that time, and so I was actually in a management role, you know, and so we had our ZFS product, and we had a whole bunch of other uh, storage products. We were also working on the storage configuration for Exadata, uh, and then, of course, once Oracle was done, uh, you know, with all that, they're, they're, of course, a big acquisition machine, so they were looking at other pieces, um, and, of course, Larry had been an investor in Pillar for a long time, so that uh, came back to the fold as well, but I was off uh, for greener pastures at that point. Uh, and really excited to, uh, to get back to some engineering, which is really what I love to do best. And so uh, I had left uh, to be one of the founders of DSSD. And so then we kind of went, uh, went dark again, and uh, the, the DSSD squad, uh, we, we kind of locked ourselves in, a, in an undisclosed location and started uh, hacking away on uh, what we think is kind of the, the next generation of storage, uh, taking a clean sheet of paper and building you know, the fastest flash product that's ever been built. And that's, I mean, that's actually the fast, one of the fascinating parts of the business for me is that, um, you know, we, you left, I mean, that pillar acquisition was quite a while ago. I mean, that's got to be a good solid eight plus years. Uh, it seems like it's right around there. 
Yeah, I don't know. I forget the exact date, but yeah, it's probably it was probably six. I think it's probably like six. But yeah, I mean, you're right. It's so, it's it's yeah. definitely been a while, and uh, you know, uh, they've got uh, you know a lot of different things have happened. Then, but yeah, DSSD. It took us, you know, it took us uh, besides just the launch stuff, but it took us like five years to you know to build this product because it is such a revolution in so many different directions. Um, and so we had, you know, it took us just a lot of time to frankly prototype and invent uh, a lot of new technologies to make this whole thing work. And and that's, that, so that's fascinating. You guys kept this secret. I mean, like to me anyways, maybe just not the only people who knew about it was the venture community and they're kind of sort of pretty good at keeping secrets, but you guys kept that secret for roughly five years before the announcement last year. Um, that's pretty, I mean, that's pretty fascinating. That seems like it's almost impossible to do these days. Yeah, it, it it was challenging. It was a deliberate choice that we made, um, and I think you know, uh, you know, uh, with all respect to the venture community, uh, I, I think they're you know sometimes they're good at that, sometimes they're not. Depends on who your venture partners are. Um, but I think you know the thing that having you know we were talking a minute ago about my my past career and and doing all these things and. You know, when you've worked on a lot of things, particularly in enterprise, particularly in systems, you know, it takes a long time to do these new innovations. And that's part of the reason for that is because the the, the amount of stuff that people expect is, is so large, just as sort of the table stakes of a new product. You know, when you come out with a storage array, you just think about all the things that, you know, just you kind of take for granted but have to be there in the enterprise. It has to ha- be upgradable. It has to have clustering. It has to have phone home. It has to have you know, all these different features that are, even before you get to what is interesting and new about this product. Um, so these things take a uh, long time and all the the significant things I've had a pl- privilege of working on my career have been, you know, these many year odysseys. Uh, you know, D-Trace was a two to three year project. Um, our ZFS storage array was a three year project. Um, you know, these things take a long time. And then, you know, with DSSD, you throw in, you know, you know brand new hardware as well, not just software. So, you know, for folks out there, it's important to understand. You know, it's not. Um, it's not like you're you're banging out an app for your iPhone, and maybe you can a couple people can do that, and in, in you know, in, in six months or whatever. Even if you're doing something uh, really cool, or or even a year, um, these things take a long time uh, to to incubate and also to build up those pieces. Um, with DSSD, you know, we obviously on our funding side, uh, we're very lucky to be funded, uh, especially initially by our our buddy Andy Andy Bechtelstein from Sun. Uh, uh, one of the Sun's founders and, and of course, a very uh, illustrious investor here in the Valley. And so rather than having to go to VCs, you know, Andy provided the seed money to get DSSD started because we all knew him from Sun and he saw the same uh, opportunity that we did. So that really helped us also stay quiet because we didn't even have to go around to the investment community and kind of make a pitch over and over again. So it wasn't like there wasn't even anyone who'd heard an investment pitch in DSSD until we'd actually been around for more than two years and had built a prototype because all that initial money was just provided by Andy on the basis of our you know past engineering relationship with him, um, and we felt it was really important to you know because we were doing something so new to just you know keep it quiet and say look we don't want to you know we're not trying to show off here we're, we don't want to tip our hand to competitors we want to have the time to. To take these really breakthrough ideas and and kind of incubate them, mature them, uh, until we actually have something that really works, um, and and so we took kind of a more low key approach to it, and then of course when the time was right, you know, bringing in EMC and others as investors and partners, uh, which you know led to our acquisition. So it was kind of a, a different path, uh, but uh, I think one that that's really paid off in the end, both for the folks at DSSD in terms of the support we've received um, from our customers and investors, and then also you know, having a great path to get to market 
uh, with EMC as the you know the, the the leader in storage. So, Mike, what um, you know you, you talked about? Hey, we w- we wanted to go rethink this. We want a clean sheet of paper. Uh, let's start new and, and focus on the next generation of, of storage. So, what was what was the thing that inspired you guys and, and led you down this path? I mean, what were the maybe the problems that you saw and that you were trying to overcome and achieve? Yeah, well, I, so I think you know it. There are really two key things that I think were kind of the the observations around DSSD that were were kind of motivating factors, um, uh, and and so they're they're both kind of worth explaining. Um, one of them is really around how we architect the storage stack, and the other one is about how we think applications want to consume data now, uh, and especially these new applications. Um, uh, so so sort of taking those in turn. Um, when I worked at, so I was talking earlier about, you know, I worked at Sun, we were building the ZFS storage array. That, that product was the first product in the industry to actually bring in Flash and be the first hybrid of Flash and disk. And that was kind of a breakthrough because when we started that sort of fortuitously in about 2006, that was the first time you could buy the first early samples of enterprise grade Flash SSDs, right? So the first samples had become available. Uh, if you remember, this was also around the same time that Flash was showing up for the first time in consumer devices other than cameras. So Flash had been invented for uh, digital cameras, was kind of the first use of it. Um, but if you remember, if, you guys probably being fellow tech heads probably owned the original iPod. And if you remember, the original iPod actually had a disk drive in it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you can actually feel it vibrate, you know, when you were playing your songs or you kind of feel it vibrating in your hand. Um, and And then, of course, Apple had also gotten onto the Flash thing and around the same time. And so then, I don't know, it was like the second iPod or the third one had finally transitioned to Flash. And that was all happening around 2006 because the price started to go down, density was increasing, reliability was increasing. And so we had seen this in sort of a... So when Flash first came in, it was around, let's make it, to get it into the storage stack, let's make Flash look and quack and talk like a disk drive. Right, so we'll take a disk. So you you imagine how the first flash controller was built, is you know you take like a disk drive controller, and on the front you got like fiber channel or or you know or SATA, right, as the thing it speaks to you know the the rest of the computer or the array that you're going to plug it into, and on the back you got motors and you know all the the you know you know magnetic sensors and all the things you use to build the disk drive. So literally the first flash controller is like you you take a machete and you cut that chip in half. And you keep the front end and you change the back end to the thing that talks to Flash. And that way, you can plug it in and your software stack doesn't have to change, right? So you got your SATA driver and you got your file system and your volume manager and all these software layers that talk to storage. They think they're talking to a disk drive, but now we got this thing which has much better random I.O. performance. So if we have that and it doesn't cost too much, we can plug it into a disk drive array. And so we did the first hybrid thing with ZFS, and of course, you know, over time, over the next couple of years, everyone in the industry adopted that architecture um, around that. But what Flash was really doing there was um, acting as a replacement for flat, fast disk drives, or uh, if you like, as sort of a, a hot cache, right? So you know, you could have a bigger cache than with DRAM, whatever. So so we have this hybrid architecture where we have slow disk drives fronted by. Uh, you know, originally used to be 7,200 RPM, 15K RPM drives. Let's take the 15K RPM drives out and let's put SSDs in. Now I have even better. So in that world, if you sort of think about that, um, the next thing that started to happen was 
the flash is getting denser, faster, and cheaper, uh, especially because all the investment in making flash, uh, thanks to all those you know uh, iPhones and iPads and things we all have, right? So the price is coming down, performance is going up, density is going up, and so very quickly, what we saw was that the flash performance was outpacing the ability to put that performance through the, the disk drive stack. So which is to say that, you know, first flash was fast enough to fill the speed of SATA. And then it was sort of, there was too much flash. You couldn't even get it through sort of the SATA pipe. So we had to have three gigabit SAS, and then we had to have six gigabit SAS. And then the next thing that happened was along comes, well, well let's make Flash. We got to get it on a PCIe card. And so that was when you started to see the first PCIe SSDs. And all of this is because, of course, we want to get, you know, if you're paying for all this Flash, you want to get all the performance out of it. And so what kept happening was these, these disk drive layers kept sort of being the thing slowing it down, right? And so th this first observation was, if you just plotted out a curve of price and performance and you looked at the speed of these disk drive interfaces and more importantly the software, the software that has to run on your host to access that stack, so going through your host file system, your host disk device driver, your host SCSI stack, it doesn't take too much expertise to see that eventually if you keep plotting out performance and density on flash, you're, all of those things are the, the, the bottleneck and the thing that we have to get rid of in order to fully realize all the flash performance. And we, 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 were, we were really acutely aware of this because we were, by the time I left, you know, decided to leave to start DSSD, we had already designed three generations of our hybrid flash system. So we knew exactly what the bottlenecks were. We knew where the price curve was going, knew the performance curve was going. And the, the, the first key observation is, we can't keep putting flash in the form of a disk drive and jamming it into the old disk drive stack. We, we have to build a new interface to get all this flash performance out to applications. So that's kind of the first thing. Um, the second thing is really about the apps themselves. You know, what do they need and what do they look like today? And I think this is kind of the, um, if we wanted to use a it's kind of a buzzword for this, this is kind of the, the big data revolution, right? And so, you know, you know, the, the apps we're all used to, like 10, 15 years ago in storage, kind, kind of, you know, we can all think of them kind of like an Oracle database, like a classic storage consuming application, right? You got a, a bunch of processes, they run on one server, they talk to a bunch of disks, and, um, and they have a very traditional kind of working set, right? You know, we, we, we can all think of our working set as being like a little bit of data that's hot, and then a bunch of data that's less hot. Uh, and a good example of that is, you know, when you run like an ERP database, right, you have an index maybe for some report that you're generating over and over again. And so your, you know, your index is your hot data. And then you have, you know, some other records that maybe are not accessed as often. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the thing that's really different about today's applications is a lot of these new breakthrough big data applications have the property that they have a, a, a very large amount of data, of course, but also that all the data is hot. They don't have a traditional working set where only 5% of the data is hot. They're rack-scale applications with thousands of processes running on hundreds of servers or thousands of servers, and they do these giant scans or ingests of all the data, and, they're, and it's all unstructured. And they don't really have this traditional kind of 5% is hot working set kind of architecture. So for DSSD, you know, this is a sort of a long way of saying what it all really came down to was we're going to build a new system. We're going to, you know, let's make a kick-ass new system. It's going to have unprecedented performance. We want to blow people away. What is this thing? You know, we don't want to just make 
there's no point in having a startup and all these smart people if we're just doing yet another version of the same thing people already have, except, you know, I don't know, better LEDs or something, right? So if we want to go do something really fun, what are we going to do, right? And, and I think that the key things we wanted to focus on were, let's get rid of the disk drive architecture entirely. Let's see how fast we can really make this stuff go if we kind of build a new highway that your new car can drive down without all the, any of the previous bottlenecks. And then while we're doing that, let's think about, instead of the idea of building a system that optimizes for the old working set and the idea of one app consuming a little bit of storage with a little bit of it hot, Let's build a system where the app is actually distributed across an entire rack and then repeated over many racks because that's the way people build the modern big data applications. And let's see if we can build it such that if the app doesn't have a working set and just wants to scan and do all kinds of random queries of this massive amount of data, we can just give them a fire hose of all their data as fast as possible. And that's what the DSSD system does. It really does those two things. Awesome. Yeah, we'll dig into kind of the, the, what that architecture looks like and how it is different. Um, I thought it was interesting, though, that you had an article on the register, and this was when you were still in dark mode uh, developing DSSD. Um, obviously, you kind of saw it, uh, that, that the, the potential, you know, the death of disk drive manufacturers, right? You saw the, the price of flash coming down, um, yep. you know, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, this was two years ago again. So um, where where do you do you still feel that way? And I feel like you do, but uh, talk, yeah. talk to us about that. Well, that's, that's you know, as a, a great topic, uh, and, and I got lots of opinions on that, yeah. So the Register did an interview with me. That, that was a couple years ago. I was, we were actually at DSSD in stealth mode. And, of course, you know, they were sniffing around by that time. So, you know, they, they called me up, hey, we want to talk about DSSD. Well, I, I, don't, I don't really want to talk about that yet. Uh, we'll have plenty to say on that later. Uh, but I am willing to talk about, you know, Flash in general. Uh, so they, they, they said, all right, we'll do something about Flash in general. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the, the thing that, you know, Lord knows I've done a lot of disk drive engineering in my life. So, I, you know, I have, let me just preface this by saying there are a lot of really smart people work on disk drives and they're very good at what they do. We should all have respect that, uh, that, that spinning pieces of plastic uh, in little boxes with helium can actually like store data and get it back. And, and you know, it's, it's an amazing, if you've ever like seen what's in a disk drive and, and you think about the densities and the, and the air codes involved and all that stuff, it's, it's incredible that uh, this stuff actually works. So I, I should preface with that. But, but I think, you know, let me just, you know, being someone who's working on future product architectures um, and thinking about where things need to go, I, I think that, you know, it's important to understand that if you look at the broad scope of different media that we have for storage, uh, it, it is pretty clear to me, at least uh, in, in my view, that that disk drives are are over time need not only will go away, but really need to go away. Um, and and it, a lot of it has to do with power and energy reasons, right? We we don't. If you think about you know how important it is to conserve energy and build efficient data centers and all that, uh, we, we don't we don't want motors. Motors are slow. Motors break, and motors consume a lot of energy. So. And, and they have friction, and, and there's, there's right, just think of the laws of physics involved. So I think that um, the important thing is that not just that flash is, is fast or random access, which it, which it is, and not just that flash is increasing in density, which it is, and bandwidth, which it is, and of course it's going down in price, but also that um, it is extremely power efficient, extremely space efficient, um, and so we can pack it much denser. Uh, and, and, and now we're starting to see not just one kind of flash, but different different grades of flash that, that can allow us to optimize for different kind of workloads. So if you think about the broad scheme of memory you have available, 
we have, if you want to keep data and you don't want to access it, but you want to keep it and you want to use no power at all, we have something which is really great for that. It's called the tape. And I think tape is actually going to last longer than disk drives because, again, if you need your data, but you want to save power and you don't need to touch it very often, uh, putting it on a tape is really, really cheap. Uh, you know, you're talking about you know, a penny per gigabyte or less and it uses zero power when you're not touching it. Uh, then you've got today... Um, things like sing, you know, not we used to have single level cell flash and an MLC, you know, multi level cell, which is really you know two bit per cell flash. But we're already on three bit now, and next year we're going to see four bit and more. So we can have flash, which is optimized for very low power, very low cost. We can have other flash, which is optimized for uh, higher power, higher performance, whatever. We can have some different gradations in there, and then we've got tape for things that we really want to save power on. So to me. Uh, the things with motors in them need to go away. Uh, it's it's not a good long-term architecture. We've sort of gotten as much out of it as we can. Um, but I think that ultimately, uh, you know, for reasons of energy and efficiency, it just needs to go away from the storage hierarchy. And meanwhile, there's all kinds of innovation going on elsewhere uh, with, with 3D crosspoint and new kinds of processor cache architecture. So the, the memory hierarchy is still changing a lot. I just think, and the, the different layers are being expanded. I just think disk drives are not really going to be a part of it. Yeah, so that's that's kind of interesting. And actually, we were reading that article. One of the things you mentioned before, uh, so I want to ask about it is uh, there's a there's a comment in there, and I don't know who who actually said it, but essentially, S Tech created the flash market, and then EMC and Sun were the first customers. And you mentioned earlier that Sun essentially consumed flash really early on for ZFS. Uh, EMC was consuming it early on also for the hybrid uh, applications. Now you're a, a, an EMCer. So who, yep. you know, who was actually first? Like, is it, was that a, just a tie or, you know? Uh, that was pretty much a tie. I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll have to, uh, we'll leave it to the internet rule mongers uh, to, to determine uh, exactly uh, uh, what the story was. Uh, but what, what I can say is that, uh, you know, and of course I wasn't an EMC all the, at the time. So you, you can interview some of the, the, the old time EMC folks uh, to find out. We, we can check the dates on ancient emails. Uh, or something, but uh, you know, S Tech, uh, which was originally called uh, Simple Tech, uh, they actually changed their name. They were a memory uh, company, and they had gotten involved early on, and, and they had built you know this sort of first enterprise uh, flash drive. And of course, they'd you know gone around to various companies and said, "Does anyone want to buy this?" Um, and so EMC and Sun, we we both sort of started talking to them around exactly the same time. Um, and and so uh, 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 you know, and so and I believe the product announcements from Sun and EMC were. Um, you know, within weeks of each other, uh, but but certainly both companies have been talking at the same time. Uh, I think that um, uh, you know the thing that was unique is that we'd done at Sun was was we'd actually changed ZFS um, to have very specific software to use different types of SSDs in different roles, and so we were sort of the first people to have specific uh, sort of a hybrid pool where there was a read cache of a certain kind of flash, and then low speed disk drives, and another kind of flash which was being used as a write accelerator. Um, but you know, again, both companies announced it at the same time, and yeah, it's kind of come full circle now that I'm EDMC. I uh, haven't done DSSD, uh, and it is fun because, of course, there are a lot of people here who worked on Flash back then, and so it's fun to sort of see the other side of the story um, and uh, and find out what happened uh, uh, from this side, uh, and also see uh, you know a lot of the um, uh, just a lot of the folks that uh, you know. Just it's interesting. To, it's great to talk to people who are working on the same problems you are and find out how they're solving them. So that's an interesting question then. How did EMC come to, you know, uh, buy DSSD? Where did they get involved? Um, was it early on? Was it late? Just kind of talk us through that. 
Yeah, well, we um, so you know, I think I, me- I mentioned earlier that we 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 started our you know we started the company. We had our investment from Andy Bechtelstein, um, you know, who uh, I first met Andy when he when I started at Sun. Actually, Andy was was gone at that time, and then he he came back to Sun through an acquisition of one of his startups, um, and uh, you know was was. Uh, I, I remember, you know, a quick, quick Andy story because, uh, uh, you know, I, I, just to folks appreciate, uh, you know, if they haven't met Andy in person. So, uh, you know, of course, he's had an incredibly successful career in the industry, probably the, the, the best Silicon Valley investor of all time and, of course, an incredible technologist. Um, I'd been at Sun for a number of years. We, we acquired this startup called Kalia, which was doing x86 systems. Uh, and so, you know, I get this email, hey, Sun's acquiring Kalia, and the best thing about this is, we're welcoming back our founder Andy Bechtelstein. Everyone, come down to the cafeteria today, uh, you know, and 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 so there's a little you know party and announcement, and Andy's there, and you know you kind of see him and you recognize his picture or whatever, and you know, and I figured after the you know, and I walk back to my office, with my friends, and I figure, oh, that's great, but that you know, you know, he's he's been around for so long and he's so famous and everything, and so we're we're probably not going to hear from him again, but it's great that he's back at Sun as kind of a you know a name, right? So go back to my office, you know, working away. Come in the next, you know, go home. Come in the next morning. My office phone rings because, of course, there's no cell phones in those days. And you know, I, I pick up my office phone, and 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 Andy, hello, this is Andy Bechtelstein. I hear you're the person to talk to about the following issue. And he then launches into like an hour-long discourse of like how serial numbers are need to be encoded in DIMMs and like what the area, you know, and because I was working on fault management for memory at the time. And so when we're like discussing like the pinout of different DIMMs and which suppliers and all these like aspects of the JetX standard. So I was, I was just like, whoa, this guy is like, you know, still doing engineering. Um, and, and so, uh, it was a real pleasure to, to work and interact with Andy, uh, for a bit at Sun. Uh, and then he, you know, he funded our startup, uh, and obviously worked with us on the, the incredible hardware design at DSSD. Um, once we'd had the, um, the system put together and, and, and prototyped, um, and this took a couple of years, we decided that we would do a round of investment uh, only for sort of strategic partners. Um, and so uh, Andy had been in touch with uh, EMC uh, at that time, and so we we brought on EMC actually as a strategic partner slash investor in this one investment round we did at DSSD. And so uh, we were working with them, potentially talking about things like EMC reselling the DSSD product or um, you know different things we maybe we could go to customers together with different kind of solutions. We were just trying to figure out different possibilities of a partnership. Um, but once they started sending engineers in and and reviewing the technology with us and looking at where we were, and 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 we really felt it was you know they thought well this would be a great thing for us to just bring in house, and, and we felt the same way as well because um, you know it's 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 uh, it's hard to be a startup in enterprise storage, uh, and we were an engineering focused startup. We didn't want to have a big marketing team and a big sales team and all that. We were just a bunch of engineers, um, and we wanted to build a great product. But we really felt that it would help us to have a leading partner in storage to help us bring it to market and also to bring scale to our engineering operations, you know, because it's, you can build and design a great product with a great, uh, great, great small team. But then if you want to bring it to market worldwide, you got to have support people, you got to have manufacturing scale, all those type of things. And those are things that EMC is a, is a leader in. So it was a great time to bring them on as an investor, to build a relationship with each other. And once we'd built that relationship, then it was really the right time to, to just come in house. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've been uh, been here for I don't know, I guess coming up on a year and a half, two years now, and and it's been it's been really great. Uh, I think EMC has really handled this acquisition incredibly well, uh, and we've 
gosh, we've, I think, tripled the size of the DSSD team since we were acquired. Um, so the, the growth has been there, the investment has been there, and I think also the patience has been there, uh, which is something that's often lacking in acquisitions, is the patience to say, this is an incredible technology you guys have built, but let's actually take the time to get it right. Yeah, and so as, as we look <clears throat> further into the actual DSSD product, um, you know, as we look at it, um, DSSD didn't really create MVME or anything like that. Right. And uh, I, I mean, you agree with me there, right? Yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, NVMe was started uh, by most notably by Amber Huffman uh, over at Intel uh, and uh, who's been a great leader for the NVMe standards effort. Um, and and we, we certainly were involved with it very early on as participating in the working group. We've done a lot of innovation around that. Uh, but now, you know, now you got 50, 60 companies involved in that, uh, certainly with us as one of the leaders along with Intel. Yeah, I think you can get I think you can get NVMe in your car now. It's everywhere. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. and it, it, and then there's this other part of it, as I understand it, where there's a PCI fabric, um, and that's not necessarily, is that something that you guys created or is that also something that, um, you, you know, you're involved in, but it's more of a, a group effort from a lot of people. How does that work out? Well, yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about those, those things. So, so first of all, on just the NVMe part, um, uh, you know, NVMe, I, I, when we were talking earlier about the ideas for DSSD, I was talking about that old disk drive stack, and we were talking about how SAS and SATA and Fiber Channel, you know, eventually our flash speed became the bottleneck uh, for performance. And so right about the time that I left to start DSSD, I was aware of the fact that, and I had actually, you know, been involved in reviewing early drafts of what was then called ENVME HCI or ENVME HCI, which was the original name of this thing, uh, we, which was later conveniently shortened to NVM Express, much better name. Uh, but the early name for it was ENVME HCI, uh, and the idea was pretty simple: was you know a lot of people around the industry, not not just me and, and and folks at DSSD, had seen as we said that we needed a new protocol that was very efficient to talk to SSDs, and Intel had at the time had made. Uh, an important decision, uh, which was to bring PCI Express directly onto the processor itself. So if you remember all of us uh, old school x86 uh, engineering, we all remember the old North Bridge and the South Bridge, right? Uh, and, and, and the South Bridge uh, was kind of a, a fancy name for like that I.O. thing that didn't, didn't really work that well and was kind of a bottleneck. And so over time, Intel engineered uh, the, the sort of uh, collapse of the I.O. architecture right into the processor socket, and so you didn't have to have this other chipset uh, to do I.O., you could do I.O. with PCIe right out of the socket. And so that's that's one of the things that led them to develop uh, a fast protocol for doing I.O. directly with PCIe. And so NVMe is really just a code word that stands for a very efficient I.O. protocol that can use as PCI Express, comes right out of the processor socket, doesn't have to go through some other chips uh, or um, other kinds of controllers to translate back and forth to some other protocol, and has a much simpler software stack. Um, so... Uh, when we when we started DSSD, we were aware of that. Uh, also aware of the early prototypes I had done at Sun were, of course, a, 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 we'd done prototypes of PCA storage, but they used sort of proprietary specific protocols. And so the great thing about NVMe was it's going to be a standard, and we could see that if it's PCIe, if it's efficient, if it's got momentum around it from Intel and other big companies, um, then this is going to be better than having your own proprietary PCIe protocol because we can get some industry momentum around that and kind of have it be that one software stack can support on a client different kinds of SSDs. Now, the thing that NVMe did not support at that time was any kind of remote access to storage. So you could have NVMe devices plugged as PCI cards right into your server, but you couldn't have 
shared storage with NVMe. So you couldn't have, for example, a DAS array, like a, you know, a, a, a sort of a JBOD, if you will, of flash that was plugged into your server. You couldn't have multi-pathing. You couldn't have a fabric like you would with a SAN or a NAS box, right? Those things weren't possible in NVMe. It was really just a protocol for saying, let's have a directly attached SSD plugged right into the server PCI bus, right? So when we started DSSD, we said, hey, this NVMe stuff is great. It's fast. It's going to be a standard. It's got industry momentum behind it. So let's, you know, kind of uh, to, to uh, quote Wayne Gretzky, let's, let's skate to where the puck is moving. Um, and let's see where things are going. Let's say the, this is going to be key for us. So let's build the first NVMe shared storage array. And so that's what the DSSD product actually is. It's the very first in the industry um, shared storage array that uses NVMe as its storage protocol. It's shared, it's multi-path, and it's this rack scale box, right? You can plug in all these different servers to it over these super dense PCIe cables that we've created. And you can hot plug them, you can multi-path them, and it's gonna use this fast NVMe Express protocol to talk to the clients. Now, so, so you can think of that as the first PCI Express fabric for NVMe, right? So now we don't just have one server talking to a couple of local drives, we have maybe 48 servers talking to this rack scale device all plugged in over PCIe. And once we built that, once we had developed a prototype of that, we decided to actually start working with Intel and a couple of the other leaders in the NVMe community to say, this is a great idea. We can see this is where things are going. Let's take what we've learned at DSSD and let's actually bring that back to the NVMe community and start thinking about in the future how that just doesn't scale uh, at, at rack scale with PCIe, but also beyond the scale of one rack to an entire fabric when we talk about things like RDMA fabrics over Ethernet or InfiniBand. So a lot of the ideas that we developed at the SSD around the PCI fabric are now being brought back into the NVMe specification under this heading of NVMe fabrics, and we're taking that and making it support not just PCI Express at rack scale, but also even wider area fabrics that use switches like uh, what's called RDMA over connected Ethernet, uh, Rocky or InfiniBand or uh, Intel Storm Lake Protocol and, and others. And so we really think that's this is the future of where high-speed storage is going, is these converged fabrics with high-speed protocols for our new storage. If you're at rack scale, PCIe is the best fabric because you don't need a switch and it's the lowest latency thing to talk to the processor. If you're going across your entire data center, across different buildings and all that, that's where you're going to want to bring in your RDMA fabric, whether you've invested in InfiniBand or whether you've invested in Storm Lake or whether you've invested in you know, 40 or 50 gigabit Ethernet. Um, those are going to be the right ways to do that. And NVMe is going to run over all those things. And so that's kind of interesting to me. I knew most of what you said there. And um, I've even tried to figure out um, uh, Crystal Ridge, which is another Intel thing. I don't. I'm not familiar with Storm Lake. So, can you explain that to me? That's oh, sorry. I'm always, I always speak in the code names. That's uh, the was the code name for the Intel um, project. It's called the OmniPath uh, fabric, and this is basically a competitor to InfiniBand. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a it's a, essentially um, another high speed uh, fabric um, that can do RDMA, um, and that will also uh, is is available uh, now and has been announced uh, by Intel. And so, customers who you know, you can sort of think of most customers. The, the way to think about fabrics for customers today is we really see kind of, I, I think, a model where um, if you want to build high-performance storage connected to sort of disaggregated compute at the scale of one rack, 
that's where PCI Express and what's unique about the, the DSSD D5 product is great because you can put that all in one rack and it's just the lowest latency thing there can be because it just jacks right into the PCI pins that are coming out of the CPU, right? And you don't need any other switches. Now, if you want to go, again, if you want to be high speed and you want to go wide area, there's really kind of two categories of fabrics to choose from. You got Ethernet, which is getting very fast these days, um, but is the low cost one. So it's slightly lower performance, but a lot lower cost, and now is getting faster with, you know, 25 giggy, 40 giggy, 50 giggy, and all the way up to 100. And then you got sort of your premium fabric, and now you got two choices of that. You got InfiniBand, and you got OmniPath, or uh, or Stormlake, as it was codenamed uh, from Intel. And and those are two choices for customers who want to spend more to get an even higher performance fabric uh, that's wide area. Um, and we're going to have NVMe and Flash products across that whole range of choices. And you may have answered it outright in your in your explanation, but just for for me, um, where does the DSSD fabric fit in there? Obviously, to me, it's the, in the premium family. Is it based on Storm Lake? Is it? Ba- it's not Infiniband, so we're. Well, so we're the first implementation of, of an NVMe fabric that's based on PCI Express. And so our first product is really targeting this rack scale architecture. So if you want to take a whole bunch of ser- you take a whole bunch of servers, you put them in a rack, you disaggregate the compute from the storage. So what that means is we take our, our CPU nodes, we don't need to put local SSDs in them because they can all jack into DSSD in the rack. And that means we can make our CPU nodes be cheaper and simpler to replace and upgrade. And we can also make them denser. So we can pack more CPUs and DRAM in the rack because we don't need SSDs in those. They're all going to share the performance of this one massive DSSD box, right? And that box is going to give you, you know, we got 100 terabytes of capacity usable, 100 gigabytes a second, 10 million IOPS, 100 microseconds of latency, right? So we got this monster. Uh, and, you, you know, of course, you can get more than one depending on, you know, what you're putting in your rack. Uh, but, you know, you can jack in all your servers in a rack, and then you can repeat that pattern across racks. And those are all connected with PCI Express wires. So that's now. And then in the future, um, you're going to see us take the same NVMe fabrics technology that we've pioneered and extend that to other wider area fabrics, uh, whether it's Ethernet or these other choices I mentioned, and take that same capability and spread it across wider areas. And, and so customers will choose. If you want the max performance and you're building a converged rack, which is what our customers are trying to do right, a lot right now, you know, a lot of people working on right now, that's where PCIe is going to win uh, because it's the cheapest and the fastest. If you want to spread your storage performance to a much, you know, if you want to have one storage node, not talking to say 100 clients, but maybe 1,000 clients or 10,000 clients, that's where those wide area fabrics are going to help. And those technologies are a little bit further out, but over the next couple years, as those mature and you see the software ecosystem build out for those, those are going to be great upgrades for people trying to rethink how they build their data center fabric and still get that high-performance storage with RDMA uh, and NVMe. Awesome. Great, great overview. So I'd like to dig into a bit more about um, use cases and then also how are customers interfacing with this, right? There's a whole bunch of APIs, a whole bunch of protocols. So Talk to us about first those, um, and then you know, kind of the underlying model that uh, presents those, and then we can dig into you know customer use cases and and what it is about this thing that's just driving people crazy. Yeah, so uh, well, I think you know, in terms of what's driving people crazy, um, you know, I think uh, definitely um, you just see across the industry there, you know, what, what's 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 a, a, a great opportunity, but also a great challenge for us. Um, is, you know, just there are so many people with these new applications who are just hurting, hurting for performance. Um, so the great thing about big data is, you know, as we all read about in the news, is it's, it's allowing us to use computers to analyze these big data sets to unlock 
you know, answers that we couldn't couldn't find before, right? Things we could do, whether it's genomic analysis or some giant, uh, you know, healthcare database or different kinds of, uh, you know, high performance analytics feeds where you want to make decisions in real time that you used to, you know, used to take you a week to figure something out. Now you want to make it that decision during the business day, right? Um, you know, whether you're whether you're on Wall Street, whether you're in science, whether you're uh, in government, you know, whatever you're doing. Um, but but the people working on that are just hurting, hurting, hurting for storage performance. And most importantly, they're hurting so badly that they don't need things to go 10% faster or 20% faster. They need to go like 10x faster. Um, and, and so, you know, so the people who come to us, particularly for DSSD, are people who are not like, hey, I'm comparing, you know, these nine products that are mostly the same and, you know, tell me why yours is a little bit better. These are people who are like, I I am currently running a calculation that takes me a week. I need this to take a couple hours or a couple minutes. And I have literally no other way to solve this problem. I, I, I don't know what to, I need you to like invent a time machine or something because, uh, you, you know, I, I can't solve my problem. And so those are the people looking at um, DSSD and why there's such affinity to it uh, and such excitement because we're coming in and people are kind of like, you know, uh, as, as your, your buddy Chad would say, it's got the, the face melting performance. Uh, and so you give the pitch and you see the faces melt kind of like at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark where everyone's face melts and, you, and, and then people kind of come <laughs> back together, right? And they're like, they're like, did you just say 100 gigabits? And I'm like, no, no, 100 gigabytes, the big B, like 100 gigabytes a second. And, and they're like, and, and that's in five rack units? Like, and then the faces melt and they kind of come back together again. And they, so that's when people are like, and then their eyes open, like, hey, yeah, that, that could really change how I'm solving this problem. Uh, now in terms of how they access the box, um, What's pretty unique about this product is that um, we got a couple different ways that people can access with their apps at the same time. So we got uh, those ways are basically we got a block driver interface. We got a super high speed multipath block driver. You can sort of cons up LUNs uh, just like you would uh, on a, like a SAN array. So you can make a virtual LUN, you know, make thousands of them if you want, and 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 make those available that are shared across all the clients that are plugged in. Uh, we got a programming API. So if you're writing a custom application and you want the absolute lowest latency performance, we got the first ever implementation of I/O to shared storage using NVMe direct from user land. So no system calls, no context switches, no operating system involved. Your app can just do I/O directly from user land um, at super low latency. Uh, so if you're building some kind of special, you know, uh, real-time analytics app, you can do that. You can access uh, special capabilities of our box, like the fact that it's a key value store. Uh, and then we also have plugins to different kind of storage architectures, including Hadoop. So we have an HDFS plugin. You can actually get the Cloudera distro. Got a great partnership with Cloudera, um, and you can build an an, an all flash HDFS uh, at very low latency uh, with the DSSD plugin, and use your distro and all your apps don't change. Uh, use that, and you can use all these models simultaneously. So you can have a whole rack of servers. You can have some running a file system on top of our block device. You can be running Oracle natively on our block device. You could be running your custom app. You could have an HDFS thing. You could do all those at the same time if you want. So we've created a couple different ways for customers to get access to this, you know, unprecedented performance. Um, and we're seeing, you know, all of those being used across the customer base. So we got some people doing very traditional apps like, hey, I got this big data thing, but it's in Oracle and I just want it to go faster. We got other people right in their own apps. Uh, we get other people with HDFS clusters that they want to make go faster. Um, so across the board, different different ways to use it. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So the underlying structure that uh, has the ability to layer on different uh, APIs and protocols is object. Is that a true story? 
Yeah, so the, the underlying piece of software that manages all your data inside of DSSD is, is this thing that, uh, that Jeff and I created uh, called Flood. And, you, you know, Flood is, is, is really at its heart, it's an object store. And so it's, it's an object store that basically manages this huge pool of flash, right? So we got this box, 5U, it's got 36 flash modules all told, more than 18,000 individual flash chips. And those are managed as this one big pool, this sort of sea of objects, if you will. And those objects can be of different types. You can have uh, block objects that are then manifested as virtual LUNs out to your clients. Uh, you can have objects that are files that sort of have POSIX file semantics and directories. And you can have key value uh, collections as well. And in the future, we may add other object types. Um, and so it's really this object store at the heart, and then there's these different ways to access uh, the capabilities of those objects. So it's really designed for these, these new applications, um, and also for apps that, that have a mixture of different models, right? Because, again, most apps today are not just one application doing one thing. They're like different processes communicating, each with their own perhaps uh, optimal way of accessing storage. And so it was important for us to kind of design for the future, design for the way apps are now, and not just be a block device or not just be a, a NAS device, but kind of think about, let's take advantage of some of the, this, this, these object ideas and provide different ways for people to all get at the same performance. And I think that's kind of another breakthrough in DSSD is uh, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's, it's this kind of extensible object store at heart, but yet managing all the flash for you transparently. Yeah, awesome. So you talked about you know other object, uh, well, other APIs and, and protocols in the future. Is there anything you can give us a hint of what's coming up? Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I think that the biggest thing is that we are looking at, um, if you think about the way apps consume storage today, um, you know, when, like long ago when I was at Sun, you know, we had, um, you know, this huge, porf you know, Sun and Solaris was great because we had this huge portfolio of Unix applications, right? So there were like 100,000 applications that everyone wanted to run and they all did, you know, POSIX IO calls, right? Um, well, today, most apps do not directly access, you know, like POSIX I.O. calls to do storage. They're usually built on some kind of storage middleware, for lack of a better term. So what we mean by that is your app might be written to consume data from HDFS, right? Or your app might be something that's sitting on top of a database, or maybe it's sitting on top of a key value store, um, or some, you know, Redis or MongoDB or, you know, whatever it might be, right, depending on your market. So so let's call those layers of software, those key value stores or columnar databases or, you know, HDFSs. Let's just call those storage middleware kind of generically, right? So most of the apps today don't do sort of the raw I.O. They talk to those, those layers. And those layers are the things that are actually doing the actual I.O. down to the storage array. So if you think about how many of those there are, um, there's far fewer of those than there are of applications, so our major goal with the API is really to get a lot of those layers converted. And, and there really aren't that many of them that matter. You know, maybe 10, 20 of those covers potentially millions of applications because, um, and so, you know, HDFS is an important one, but it's not the only one. And so I think what you're going to see from us over time is, you know, of course we have an API in the block device, but taking our API and getting it integrated with more of the interesting pieces of storage middleware that are out there and that's going to uh, really enable us to bring more of the power and performance of our architecture to this, you know, humongous collection of new applications that are being written today. And so we see uh, that's that's awesome, by the way, and it's a lot of cool stuff. And I always love the word columnar. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite words. Um, and so we we see these predictions from analysts of things like um, traditional storage having, you know, a general uh, average or you know moderate 
you know, tight, slight decline, but all the growth in the industry is really in file and object on top of these other types of architectures for modern applications. And so we hear a lot about file and object. You've mentioned object. Where does file fit into this conversation? Does it belong on something like DSSD or is that a traditional all flash array type conversation? Yeah, well, so file, you know, again, like most of these access protocols, um, there's a wide variety of different applications that run on top of file today. And definitely, definitely, some of those, boy, are they hurting for performance, right? So we got to remember that one thing that's important to, to remind people of, and, and those of you who write applications for a living, this, the following statement will resonate with you, is that when you write your application, the easiest way to get it going is, of course, to start by writing it to a file. And because, you know, that's what we all learned to program with, right, was, you know, you, you, you start doing basic file operations as the way of saving your data. And what often happens is you write a big piece of software and you don't realize how far people are going to scale up your app in terms of how much the data they're going to put into it. So you write all this software, it's talking to files, and the next thing you know, you have some customer who's got like 100 million files, right? And now they're hurting for performance. And so that's where accelerating that file access can make a big difference. Now, let me give you a very concrete example of that which is if you ever go talk to a chip company, right, so anyone in the Valley who makes an ASIC for a living, right, they got to have uh, all these, you know, they have these special purpose programs to let them create ASICs and lay out PCBs and, and you know, do all the tape outs that you do to create a piece of silicon, right? So you got to have all these, you know, circuit designs and all the stuff that you do, right? And as part of that, Right, you use all these specialized tools. Well, all those specialized tools were all written to use files in a file system. So if you're like, you know, I won't name names of our customers, but let's just say you're a company making chips that go in billions of cell phones today or something like that, right? You got to tape out those chips. You have these huge file sets that are necessary to tape out these chips. And those are all in a file system. Those programs were not written to do anything other than file storage. And yet today, when you're talking about taping out like a 20 nanometer ASIC, you got a lot of files and those applications are trying to crunch on that file data potentially for literally days or weeks. So if you can take that kind of legacy application that now has an unprecedented amount of file storage in it, and you can put in underneath that the world's fastest uh, you know, block device serving up a file system, uh, and you can literally accelerate someone's tape out of their ASIC by a week and bring in their tape out schedule, uh, that's making a huge difference to their business. So that's an example of where you see apps that were, you know, they they were designed for small amounts of files, but because of business needs and because of the fact that it's hard to change that software, they now have humongous numbers of files and making that go faster can make a huge difference to their business. So there's, there's all these uh, press releases that we see coming out when we talk about the other things that are evolving in the industry. Uh, and everybody, some people like to announce things that they've basically just invented and then see what the, <laughs> it's almost like the Kickstarter of uh, press where they go, Hey, we invented this thing. We think we like it and then see what people write about it so they can see what the business application of it is. But yeah. one of those that's pretty real, uh, is 3d cross point, right? And so it's, yeah. it seems like it's the next evolution past MVME. Yep. And so what do we, I mean, like, do we care about this? Do we, do, do, do we hold off and just wait for cross point to be ready? Um, are we already integrating a DSSD or where's the cross point story in this whole thing? That's a great question. Um, so, so let's, you know, let's, let's remind people, first of all, you know, people haven't seen a little bit about what this, this stuff is all about. Um, and, and Crosspoint is one of the technologies, not the only one, um, but, but certainly one that's gotten a lot of press uh, that was sort of pre-announced and, and, is, and, and sort of the, the pre-announcements of that um, continue as it's coming to market. That's a, um, one of the new sort of 
very promising post-NAND technologies. So what these, what these sort of post-NAND next generation NVM technologies are basically going to be is they're going to be something that kind of sits in between, uh, if you will, DRAM and flash in terms of price and performance, right? So, so whenever we have a new thing in the memory hierarchy, it usually has to have a unique place in terms of price and performance. Otherwise, it doesn't have a reason to exist. So we have, you know, your processor cache rate is super duper fast and really small and pretty expensive to build into your CPU. Then you got some DRAM. Then we got our flash storage. So if we're going to have something in between sort of DRAM and flash, uh, it just in sort of simple terms, it's going to be a little bit less expensive than DRAM, but more expensive than flash. But it's also going to be a lot faster than flash. And so these now we're talking, you know, flash to, to read flash, depending on the kind you have, is somewhere between 50 and 100 microseconds. These next generation NVMs like uh, 3D Crosspoint are going to be things that we can read in, in a, a single digit microseconds or lower. Um, and so that's sort of forming a new tier in the memory hierarchy. And it's really important um, in terms of you know, adding yet more performance to what these, these new kinds of big data applications can do. Um, now, in, in terms of the DSSD product, uh, one of the things w we knew about these things when we were developing the product, and so we were very careful to design our physical hardware and our software layers to be able to support the transition to this kind of memory as well, um, including in a hybrid fashion with Flash. Um, so we have a unique hardware form factor for our pluggable Flash modules, which has a much greater space and power envelope than just a traditional SSD. And so we have designed that to be able to uh, allow us to bring these future technologies to market, potentially inside the same product. Um, either uh, you know with with all of that stuff or mixing that with flash as well and so are we have very active engineering around that um, can't uh, exactly announce the details of that today because uh, we're we, we try to actually announce things when they're actually ready to ship and, uh, and not just uh, something that we might be thinking about but let's just say we've done a lot of work on this area very active for us uh, and and we have designed our product both hardware and software so we can actually bring that new technology right in and, and integrate it. And the idea of having a big shared pool of next generation NVM that a whole bunch of servers connected to DSSD can access is absolutely something that we've designed this product for. And it's going to be really, uh, I think, incredible what we can do when we bring that to market. And, you know, if you think about, um, let's just give an example of why that's important is think about, you know, accelerating a future database. You know, a database has a, usually a transaction log, like a redo log and a big table space. So that's a good example of where you might want to, if you can take your transaction log and you can, you know, lower that latency even further, but then you can keep your big table space on Flash, that might be a really effective way to have a, a hybrid architecture that incorporates a mixture of Flash and next generation NVM. So there's a lot of problems uh, that, that look like they will benefit from either this NGNVM or a mixture of NGM, NGNVM and Flash. And, uh, and, and certainly Crosspoint is one of the most promising technologies out there to do that. It's uh, it's pretty fast. I, I like the fact that uh, to hear that we kind of architected the the underlying substrate of the the hardware and all the path and even the software to be able to be, um, you know, future proof for things that are being pre announced and things like that. So it's a uh, it's a lot of fun uh, to hear that kind of stuff. You mentioned other technologies besides Crosspoint though that are out there that have been kind of announced as being compelling. Are there other technologies that are compelling that we've also architected for? Yeah, well, all these we've we spent a lot of time 
designing our software and our hardware so that we would not just be limited to one kind of flash or one kind of you know future uh, memory. So we've got you know it's hard to sort of go into all the details, but you know just think of it as you got to have the right abstraction layers. You know inside these different layers that you have inside your product of hardware and software, how they talk to each other. You got to sort of future proof those, as you said, for how we bring these things in. So we've we've architected those very carefully so that. Um, we can bring in different kinds of media and different media controllers, and we can sort of describe their physical geometry in a way that our software can adapt to. Um, and so, you know, the industry has been exploring for some time uh, different choices of these next generation memories. Some of the technologies people may have heard of are things uh, that are called phase change memory. Uh, 3D crosspoint is kind of a unique, um, specific kind of memory. Um, and then uh, we also have other ones that, that are being explored include what's called resistive RAM, uh, re-RAM, uh, and, and also what's called magnetic RAM, or sometimes called uh, STTM RAM, which, which stands for uh, spin torque uh, magnetic RAM. And there are different vendors working on all these technologies, announcing different products. And, you know, over time we'll see, uh, you know, who can sort of fabricate something that's the densest, fastest, cheapest, and so forth. And they all have different, you know, reliability properties as well. So that, you know, it takes something like a decade or, or more to mature one of these memory technologies. Uh, so these are huge, you know, billion-dollar investments. Uh, so we don't want to just bet on one horse. You know, we want to make sure that our product is designed to adapt to whoever sort of wins that race. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and multiple companies are invested. So, you know, right now the, the, the cross point memory is definitely in the lead, but, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be sleeping on any of these other, uh, you know, competitors who own FAS as well. So you're saying we didn't just bet on beta <clears throat> as far as the, <laughs> yeah. the future yeah. of the product. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, That's we, awesome. we gotta, we gotta design for different things. And I, I think what's for sure, what's for absolute sure in the industry is that we are headed to a world where there is something that is as fast as DRAM or, or very close to as fast as DRAM, but is denser, cheaper, and non-volatile, uh, which is to say when you power off your computer and power it back on, uh, that data can still be there. Uh, and that's, a, that's never existed before. So that is an absolute breakthrough technology. Very exciting for those of us in storage, but also should be really exciting to people writing applications. You know, So if you're writing an application, uh, that's never existed before, and it should really change the way people think about writing applications that have, um, you know, uh, have data uh, because of what you can do. And so I think um, uh, we're going to see it. I'm very excited to see the sort of revolution in application programming coming over the next five or ten years to adapt to that technology, much like if you sort of go back in a time machine to the start of my career, uh, we saw applications have to change to adapt to things like multi-threading. Right. And, and remember when apps had to change because all of a sudden we had more than one processor core and we wanted to take advantage of that. This is an, the new kind of programming revolution. Now there's non-volatile memory speed stuff. What are you going to do with that? Uh, and so, you know, we're excited to bring that to people and even more excited to see, you know, what they can do with it uh, right in that next generation of apps. So, Mike, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure obviously as a you know, co-founder of DSSD, you, you stay on top of uh, the, the, the news, like the trade rags. People talking about DSSD, um, where are where are the people getting it right and getting it wrong? Uh, in terms of well, I think the part that that's really classifying it right. So I mean, yeah. the way they're classifying it, the way they're 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 putting it out there as this thing, um, you know, not correctly articulating, you know, how it connects to uh, to the to the compute, all those kind of things. Well, I think that the the part that has absolutely been been gotten right, um, and and uh, 
you know, in terms of uh, that is, is really around uh, performance and, and just understanding the performance thing. Um, you know, just to quote, you were mentioned in the register before, and let me just quote, uh, you know, uh, their great uh, storage author, Chris Miller, who, who wrote, you know, after our announcement, he, he said, you know, no other supplier has a storage array equivalent in performance to the D5. It stands alone. And I think that pretty much, you know, uh, says it all. That's that's a that's a great quote that we got uh, from someone who I think is as as good an analyst of different storage technologies out there as anyone. Um, so so that part, I think people have understood. This is an absolute revolution in performance. What they can do, um, I think the part that people have, you know, in in some cases, I I, I think uh, mostly in our in this part of our competitors rather than trade rags ha- have misunderstood is that they think that this kind of performance is just for a handful of people. Uh, and that is a big, big mistake. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, th- th- that just shows that all of the many customers who actually have these problems are not talking to those vendors. And that's because their products are quite slow indeed. And so when you look at, uh, you know, when you look at these people, well, nobody needs that performance. Like, yeah, none of the people talking to you because your product is so slow, it might as well be filled with disk drives. So I, I, I think there were possibly tapes in some cases. So, you know, th- this is where I, I think, you know, uh, there's been some confusion and we should unconfuse people and explain that there are a very large number of customers who need this kind of performance. There are people, and these are people, and by the way, these are people who don't just need one system of fast performance, but these are people with huge multi-byte data sets. They are serving themselves thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of customers with those big data sets. And so when we talk about fulfilling their needs for high performance, we're talking about fulfilling the need of a, a really, really large customer base and allowing them to solve problems that they couldn't solve before. Um, and so I'm, I'm really thrilled with that. And I, I think also, you know, just in terms of the, um, you, you know, and, and the other thing I think people just don't understand sometimes is how much innovation is required to do that. We had to literally reinvent the entire storage stack, hardware and software to get these performance levels, uh, to build an object store that has, you know, this incredible performance, to write our software a different way to get these latencies, um, to build unprecedented reliability technology. And so we've got, you know, innovation uh, all over our stack. And uh, the other folks, you know, sometimes say, well, you know, that, that's not that innovative because they just, you know, whatever they did. And it's like, well, uh, you know, th- that's because, you, again, you don't really have that performance and so you don't really understand what's involved in getting it. Uh, and so that's it's sort of easy to be dismissive, but I think um, you know the, the customer base uh, is is really responding to what we're doing, and uh, and, and so uh, the folks who have, who have played with the product uh, and kicked the tires are are just blown away by what it can do, and I think there's a huge audience out there for that that we're really excited about reaching. Absolutely, yeah. I've got a customer who is both POCing DSSD D5 and a Pivotal customer. Um, who spends a lot of time out in San Francisco? So I need to link you guys up. Uh, yeah, yeah. For them well, to they get. Uh, we'll meet at the Pivotal office because they got uh, some fun, some fun. I don't know if you've been to that office in San Francisco. Yeah, but, yeah. But, I own. I own that ping pong table. Oh, that I was gonna. All right. Well, we we, we got to get it on then uh, at the ping pong table because uh, they got. Uh, yeah, that's a fun office. So I'll meet you there. Uh, they got free food and, and beverages too, so that's a good Absolutely. spot. Absolutely. Yeah. So couple I wanted of kale to quickly chips and some ping pong. I wanted to quickly reiterate. Right, we you, you said this in the beginning, like the. Um, you know, people hear them, the 10 million IAPs, the 100 gigabytes of, of bandwidth, 100 microseconds of latency, what is it, 144 terabytes in all in 5U. Now, people probably hear those and say, those are hero numbers, those are marketing numbers. I want you, the founder and VP of engineering and everything, to tell us 
what those really mean and, and how true are they and how are they, um, how are they possible? Well, yeah, so those are, you know, numbers we quoted and those are not just, you know, those are not just numbers on some magical program that we wrote that no one else can get. Uh, We've actually had, um, just to give one specific example, you know, we talk about 100 gigabytes a second. Uh, You know, we've had workloads running at, uh, for example, the the, the Texas Advanced Computing Center uh, down in Texas was one of our early beta customers and, and, you know, has the SSD that's gone public about it. Uh, They've gotten 100 gigabytes a second on their workloads, too. Um, and so that's, that's not just some magic number that we get here at EMC. That's a number that a customer got, and they actually won an award for it uh, for some of the stuff they were doing with their science research cluster uh, for being the best HPC storage recently from uh, uh, the recent HPC conference where they announced what they did. Um, so these are not just magic secret benchmarks or anything. These are things that real customers can do. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in terms of and, and getting, uh, you know, we've got customers using databases that, you know, we got... Uh, you know, more than 5 million Oracle IOPS, and that's not just what we do, that's what customers can do, and we'll give you that, we got the slob tool, we'll give you the slob script that'll get that, and we got customers that have gotten that through a real Oracle database doing real uh, queries, so these are real numbers, um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, you ask, like, so how did we do that? Uh, you know, again, we've talked about, you know, it's this revolution in hardware, revolution in software, um, but the the key parts of it are really that we've got this incredible PCI Express fabric to take all the performance of our SSDs and and get that out in parallel to our our applications that are consuming it. Um, you got you know ninety six four gigabyte a second PCI NVMe plugs that you can plug into DSSD, so you got an incredible amount of bandwidth uh, available to get all that performance out. And then we've got this unique software architecture where we have a separation of the data plane and the control plane. So apps can send us control traffic to do IOs, but then that data plane is going to light up and get all that performance out. So you know it's got a very unique architecture for the product, uh, and and great performance numbers that our customers are experiencing as well. No, that's great. I you know I think it's it's it's. I think it's important to reemphasize um, that again. They're not hero numbers. This is real life. Um, you know, you, you guys have created something uh, that's game changing, and uh, it's for the masses. And especially, like you said, in this world of of big data and analytics and real time uh, transactions, um, it's, this is this is very important, right? The, these spaces are blowing up. Flashes um, is. You know, continue to 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 reducing cost, and uh, it's going to become more. We like to use the word democratized. Yeah, and I, that's just the thing. I think when you make something like this, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's a tool. You know, and the thing that we get amped about, and I certainly get amped about as an engineer working on it, is just to see, you know, what it's like. Kind of like you're making a hammer. Let's see what people can do with this thing. You know, we made, uh, we made, you know, we made a very big hammer indeed. Uh, and, and, and we're just incredibly excited to see what people can do with this product uh, now that we've given them this kind of 10x breakthrough in performance. That's awesome. And uh, so, well, we uh, we got so excited about this thing. You got us all nerded up on Flash again. This is uh, <laughs> this happens to us every time. We have um, more than exceeded our quota of what you you did. You're probably going to go back and and you know crush some some IOP numbers and throughput and uh, do some awesome things. So, Mike, we appreciate it. Uh, you know, tell us. You know, tell us again, is there, it looked like you were pretty quiet on social media and things like that. I know you like to keep a low profile. Um, any social media stuff, any way people can reach out to you and learn from you? Uh, yeah, just, you know, uh, hit me up on emails. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm way too old school, I guess. Hit me up on email uh, or talk to the thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, you can, you could send me email. 
uh, at MWS at DSSD and dot uh, com and and uh, you know uh, just reach out or reach out to us at EMC. Uh, grab your grab your SE if you if you got if you're an EMC customer, grab your SE and say I want to do a proof of concept at DSSD or check it out um, or hit me up if you want to ask a question. Um, or get if you're an engineer, you know, get involved in the NVMe community out there in the industry, which is great. Um, and uh, you know, and, and come check out and check out the launch demo. You know, I'd encourage people if you want to see. Uh, biggest thing I'd encourage people uh, if you're online, go to emc.com, click on I want to take a quantum leap, and then scroll down through the chapters, find uh, the one with my name on it, uh, and click on that. You'll see me actually hold up the hardware and explain it all. Just take a couple minutes, and people can actually see what this thing actually looks like. After they've listened to us, uh, and then uh, check it out, and I, I think it's uh, it's really exciting to see uh, again what people are going to do with it. And there's also your amazing wiki, which uh, you know I'm going to go I'm going to yeah. go update with your um, uh, with your your podcast as soon yeah, as it launches. And yeah. um, so now other things, education, things like that, especially maybe MVME, maybe anything else, any books that you would suggest to people. Uh, well, I think you know. Um, uh, boy, uh, so many uh, you, you know great things to look at online. Um, there's there's probably an NVMe Wikipedia page. Uh, if you go to nvmexpress.org, the whole word spelled out nvmexpress the word .org. That's the NVMe community page for the whole industry. You can go there if you want to learn more about NVMe Express. Like we said, emc.com. Uh, uh, click on the Quantum Leap link uh, or type in DSSD in the search bar. You can check out the DSSD stuff. Um, uh, those are great things um, and. Uh, Gee, uh, I think uh, you know if you wanna if you wanna read a great book about computing, um, uh, you know just uh, more like the history of where this stuff came from. Uh, the one I recommend is actually uh, the book about Alan Turing, uh, which is called Alan Turing: The Enigma. And uh, if you want to go back in history before there was Flash, uh, but check out sort of the history of computing, that's a great great book. Um, and in fact, uh, Alan Turing and 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 to a degree John von Neumann are really the two guys who invented the memory hierarchy. And it's really interesting to go back and, and read about how they did that uh, back in the, in the 1940s and 50s. And so if you want more a student of history on how this stuff came to be, uh, go check out that book. I really highly recommend it. Um, and then you can sort of fast forward to your knowledge of NVMe and Flash and see where it all came from. That's awesome. And it, it, it's always good to see where you came from, right? So uh, thanks again so much, Mike. So cool. thanks, guys. Yeah, uh, you know, on, on behalf of the Hot Owl, we want you, we don't want you to email us. That's old school like Mike is. Um, <laughs> we want you to hit us up on social media. You know how to do that. Um, just get social with us. We're loving all the feedback. We've got a lot of great suggestions this week on uh, what to do, and we've already lined those up for the future. So thanks again. Uh, and again, so I'm Brian Carpenter. And I'm on mute. My name's Brett Piatti. Thanks again. Thanks, Mike. Have a good day. Thanks, guys. You take care.